0: Hello, this is Jason Futch, and I'm one of the hosts of From the Vault, a true crime podcast. I want to thank you all for listening to today's episode as we talk about the Harry and Harriet Moore Christmas night bombing in 1951. The following conversation that is about to take place may contain strong political dialogue, which includes the personal political beliefs of the hosts and the guests on our show today. Listener discretion is strongly advised on this episode and the next episode following this one, which will be coming out really soon. We are including this because we want to make sure that the listener is understanding of what we're about to talk about before they listen to this episode, because political conversation may not be something the listener is comfortable with. And we completely understand that this is not a political or social justice show. This is simply a true crime podcast, but again, you cannot help, but talk about politics when talking about Harry and Harriet Moore, if this is not your jam, go ahead and listen to us when we're not talking about politics or listen to some of the previous episodes that we have released, but we will be coming out with more new content soon. But in the meantime, We do strongly urge our listeners to listen to today's episode and the following episode after that because this conversation is very important to have. And we do this in memory of Harry and Harriet Moore because this is the kind of conversation they would love for all of us to have. Americans, Canadians, Mexicans, whoever we are listening to this podcast. It's a very important discussion to have. And we strongly urge you to have that conversation when you're talking to somebody next. Ask them, do they know who Harry and Harriet Moore are? And if they don't, educate them. Because that's the importance of today's episode. America needs to know who Harry and Harriet Moore are. We thank them with all of our hearts and all of our souls. For those who appreciate social justice, who appreciate equality, We thank Harry and Harriet Moore for their time here on earth and what they did for Floridians and Americans alike. And finally, I want to thank Bill Gary of the Harry and Harriet Moore Cultural Complex. He is the board of directors, president for that organization. Be sure to visit the Harry and Harriet Moore Cultural Complex in Mims, Florida. Next time you're in Brevard County or the Titusville area, He'll be waiting for you with open arms and ready to talk to you about the life and times of Harry and Harriet Moore. Thank you, Bill. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of From the Vault, right here on Anchor FM and wherever you can find your favorite podcast. I'm Jason Futch, and thank you for joining us as we discuss the case of Harry and Harriet Moore. It's a homicide case out of Brevard County that happened in 1951. It was a bomb that was set by the Ku Klux Klan, possibly, but they never were able to really identify who did it. And... Today, we're going to be talking about that case a little in-depth in this two-part series. With that being said, Nick, thank you for joining me again on this episode. As always, happy to be here. Now, I'll tell you this, man. This is a very important episode, and this is probably one of the most important episodes that we've recorded in recent time since we've been doing this because we're talking a lot about Civil rights. We're talking about black history, essentially. And all of this coincides with a bomb that exploded in Memphis, Florida, which would kill two prominent civil rights leaders, Harriet Moore and Harry Moore. And so, Nick, what do you think about this case? Because I know this is one of our first episodes on this topic.
1: I think, you know, despite the fact that the crime in question took place over 70 years ago. It's still a very important topic to touch on, you know, because this, you know, type of issue is still very present in our society today, not just limited to what we read about in history class in fourth grade. We're still, you know, seeing stories in the news regarding race, violence against particular nationalities and people of color. It's still a fight that needs to be fought. And I think it's still very relevant to discuss today. Yeah,
0: because we're still living in times where, you know, things like George Floyd and and Ahmaud Arbery, you know, all that happened. And we're still living in times of racial tension because of that stuff. Honestly, I will say that things could definitely be better. But at the same time, we had pioneers like Martin Luther King and and Medgar Evers and other leaders, Joseph Lowry and, and all these folks. They helped pave the way for where we're at now, where Blacks don't get challenged at the voting polls and they don't get challenged when they're sitting in a certain seat on a bus. Harry and Harriet Moore were one of the pioneers of Florida Black history, where Harry Moore was trying to register Black people to vote. There were some very important elections coming up around the time that he was murdered. And one election in particular that I think of is the fact that Dan McCarty was running for governor. And Dan McCarty was a very important person in that regard because he practiced a little bit more progressive politics where he was going to give everybody a fair share and make sure that everyone was treated equal. And then suddenly, he dies of a heart attack only six months into office, and he's replaced by an arrogant, racist homophobe named Charlie Johns. And Charlie Johns was responsible for what they called the Johns Committee, which was basically investigating teachers who were apparently homosexuals, specifically at the University of Florida. It was literally a McCarthy hearing, sort of. Ultimately, they kind of ignored all that, and he eventually got defeated on an election where he was defeated by Leroy Collins in Tallahassee. And that would also pave the way for more civil rights in Florida because Leroy Collins was pro-civil rights. He actually walked with Dr. King. So, you know, lots of things like that. But Florida, even though a lot of people didn't really hear about Florida in the news often, it was more Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida still had its race issues. And we've decided in this particular series that we have someone join us on this program because he'll be able to kind of give us more insight into the life of Harry and Harriet Moore and the murder and then the subsequent investigations. So we invited... Bill Gary from the Harry and Harriet Moore Cultural Center out of MEMS, Florida, to join us for these episodes. Hey, Bill, how's it going?
2: Fine. Glad to be here with you, all you and Nick this afternoon. Kind of cool here in my hometown of Philadelphia, Mississippi, but we're enjoying our visit here and, you know, looking forward to get back to Florida and get back to our routine of things there. As you mentioned earlier, Harry and Harriet Moore were leading civil rights activists early on in the state of Florida. And there was others who was active in that area of civil rights. But these were the first couple that really got national attention and was bringing issues to the forefront that would impact society for years to come. One of the big issues in the state of Florida and also affected other states was the equal pay for black and white teachers, which Harry Moore championed and advocated and actually got a friend of his to act as plaintiff. And they filed a lawsuit in the state of Florida. And even though that lawsuit was denied here in Florida, but it opened the gates for Maryland and Georgia and some other states, North Carolina, where similar law suits were filed. And ultimately, in the state of Florida, Supreme Court ruled uh, about three years later that, yes, teachers should be paid equal salaries for equal work. And that's something that has far-reaching, you know, ramifications there. You also write about his passion and firm belief in that change over the long term would come at the ballot box with being able to register and cash your vote for persons who shared your same interests. And so even though the national NAACP was a non-partisan organization and did not want him really venturing into that arena too much because he was interested in registering African-Americans in Florida as Democrats, remembering Back in the 40s and 50s, the Democratic Party basically ruled the state of Florida politically. And his reasoning, which was very sound, that if we get more blacks registered as Democrats, we could make some impact on the elections there. And so he set about doing that by forming, he and Ed Davis forming the Progressive Voters League. And through that organization, which was actually a, you know, separate from the NAACP so that they could do that. But they were successful in registering over about a six-year period, over 100,000 black citizens here in the state of Florida. And that certainly had some impact. That Even on the local level, one of the county commissioners, that he was able to garner enough people along with others to defeat that particular candidate. So they were... <laughs> Before their time, in all sense of the word, their, the issues that Dr. King and Malcolm X and Megan Adams and a number of others took up later on after 1954, the groundwork had been laid in the late 40s by Harry and Harriet Moore.
0: That's very interesting you point that out, Bill, because you know we're talking about 70 years ago, the Moors were trying to register blacks to join the Democratic Party. And this was a time when the Democratic Party was a whole different party than the party it is now, which actually these Democrats of the 50s, 60s, and early 70s were nicknamed Dixiecrats because of their pro-segregation ideas and stuff. But also the Democratic Party had a liberal wing at the time as well, where you had governors like Ellis Arnall, who served in Georgia back in the, I think it was the 40s or 50s, he was considered a liberal Democrat because he believed blacks had the right to vote. Blacks had the right to go to the state college system schools, like the University of Georgia, Georgia State. And then he, kind of like Dan McCarty, gets replaced by a pro-segregationist governor. It's kind of like taking one step forward and two steps
2: back. Right. Yeah. And and that seems to be, you know, the cycle of things that whenever there seems to be some progress being made toward equality of all. And that's one of the things I think Harry Moore sought really at the end of the day is just an equal opportunity to get an education, to make a decent living and to be able to vote. And participate in our political process.
0: Right. And then also to think about this, too, is that Harry Moore, he came from very humble beginnings. He grew up in Swanee County, where I grew up in. And you know, he grew up just a town over from where I grew up. And I actually lived in Houston, Florida myself. So it's like the spirit of Harry Moore was there this whole time, and I didn't even know it. Yeah. Until I crack open a 2008 edition of the Suwannee Democrat, where they're talking about this investigation into a murder that happened to a former Live Oak native. They called him a Live Oak native, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. And then slowly I realized that Suwannee County was the location of many firsts for like, for the black community. You had also some very unfortunate history where there, where Willie Howard was murdered. Right. And that's a whole nother episode in itself because that was such a brutal and tragic murder. And honestly, I wouldn't even call it a murder. I'd call it a lynching. Yeah. But it was, it was a Mm -hmm. lynching.
1: Yes. No, I couldn't agree more. Mm hmm.
0: And so, you know, and you have all this stuff happening in this area, but at the same time, Harry Moore was brought up there in the early 1900s, grew up and lived in Halston. And I believe his father worked for the railroad. Am I correct? Yes.
2: Right? yes, yes. His father worked for the railroad, I believe. But, you know, he passed away when Harry was 14, I believe it was mm-hmm. 14, maybe he was nine. I think he was 14 and his mother ran a little store and she did some other work, but, you know, found it hard to provide for the family. So she decided to send him to Jacksonville, you know, where she had some (laughs) sisters and he basically got his education about the world and the possibilities, what could be from being in that vibrant Jacksonville black community there, you know, where he right. saw other professionals and his aunts encouraged him to study. And that seemed to have been one of his real strengths is that he was a very intellectual young man to the point that he would often be called on in school to help solve problems there. So he was a pretty smart guy once he received his normal degree, which at that time was basically the degree that blacks could receive at the colleges and allowed them to go teach, then he Mm -hmm. found a job here in Brevard County in Cocoa at the Cocoa Colored Elementary School. And so he came here, you know, in 1925. And as the story goes, met his future wife at a bid twist card party. And they say, and his daughter Evangeline says, you know, he told her it was love at first sight when he saw this woman, who was a couple years older than he was. He was sure. you know, barely out of his teens, and nineteen, twenty years old, and he met this woman. And then a year later, they were married on Christmas Day in Cocoa. This whole thing is all the more tragic, really, Jason and Nick, when you think that. We basically, as a Christian nation, not basically, but majority Christian nation, and we celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas time there. And most people, that's a time of year of joy and happiness and good cheer toward your fellow man and all those things there. And here, this couple merely because they wanted the right to vote and they wanted to be treated as citizens of this country, go to bed Christmas night, 1951, and a bomb explodes under their home and kills Harry. His wife is, you know, fatally injured and dies nine Mm. days later. I mean, how more tragic can any event be than something like that? And so 70 years later, as we reflect on various events over the past few years and try to come to terms with how do we reach that point of equality and persons being accorded those rights under the constitution without having to go to court and fight and stuff like that. And we look back on Harry and Harriet Moore's time and we see That there are forces out there, there are people out there that, for a number of reasons, and we, you know, that's a whole topic in itself, would deny you that, you know, that they want to keep that from you. And so we have to do whatever we can to make sure that one, that history is told and it's told accurately and factually because there are persons who want to skew history, who want to. Delete certain parts of history, even though those parts may be unpleasant or something to talk about. But you can never really know history unless you know the complete history. There, you know, you can't talk about World War II without talking about the Holocaust. There, you know, you can't talk about the fight for independence for this country unless you talk about that part where people were enslaved and now. That's no longer there, but that was a part of the history there. And so mm-hmm. we try to keep that going. And with Harry and Harriet Moore, yes, Florida was more than beaches and orange trees and orange juice at that time then. Florida had another part of its history that only really in the recent years, I mean, that it has come to light some of the things that happened here. Right.
1: Before Jason proposed the idea of having this, you know, as an episode for our podcast, I had absolutely no idea who the Moors were and what a big impact they had on not only the state but you know the nation, the world, even, and you know all of the work they had done to pave the way for future civil rights activists. This was something that was not taught, you know, in my school system. I mean, of course, I'm. Quite a ways away from you guys. But, you know, this story is, you know, it's tragic, unfortunate, but it's very fascinating to see what the Moors did during their lifetime, how much they achieved. And that's something that really shouldn't be forgotten.
2: Yeah. Well, and you're not alone in that in terms of not hearing about the Moors. I mean, yes, you are far away, but there are people even here locally who do not know about the moors or their story there now some they choose not to others they would have known had that been taught in the local schools here Mm -hmm. As they they grew up here went to school finished high school and you know got some kind of job or another and have lived here pretty much all their lives there and it has only been in you know recent years, the last 10 or 15 years since the Memorial Park and Museum have been in existence, that they learned about the moors themselves. Now, thankfully, that has all changed now, because this past year, February of 2021, the school board passed a resolution that created a task force to develop a legacy curriculum about the Moors. And starting next year in February, that curriculum will be taught in Bevoid Public Schools to 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th graders. So from now on, 2022 afterwards, all students who graduated from Bevoid Public Schools will have some introduction to and Harriet Moore and the work that they did. So we will no longer have person, you know, growing up here, going to school here, and not knowing that story to some extent there, you know, and all eighth graders, the school district has provided that all eighth graders would have a field trip out to the Moor Museum in part. Again, they will get a much more immersive introduction to the Moors and everything about them now. So I think that's the kind of thing that will live on you know, forever there, that persons who, as long as we have aboard public schools, will be introduced to that story. And as they go out into the world, wherever they might go, to colleges, foreign lands, or wherever, they will know that history as part of the Florida history and the U.S.
0: history. So That's just awesome. Like, that's, to me, as a native Floridian, makes me feel so good because no one should ever forget the Moore's legacy. And I'm glad and thankful that I got to know a little bit more about Harry and Harriet Moore and their story because, and this is something interesting that I was just thinking about while you were talking is it's funny how situations like this tend to be forgotten, but more infamous situations tend to be remembered case in point. Ruby McCollum, In Live Oak. Right. Yes. To this day, everyone in Suwannee County knows the story of Ruby McCollum and how she killed the local doctor who apparently got her pregnant. Right. And honestly, there's been so much rumor and innuendo in that case to begin with. That, you know, I even had heard a story that it was apparently the doctor's wife that killed him. Oh, yeah. And that she had confessed on her deathbed at the nursing home. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how true that is and stuff like that. You really don't know the truth in these kind of situations. Right, yeah. And, yeah it's, hard, and it's hard. Yeah. So everyone will remember that case because a white doctor got murdered. But right. yet we forget the Moors bombing and homicide because they were civil rights activists. And ultimately, as the story goes, they just let sleeping dogs lie in that situation.
2: And one of the other things too, Jason, about that too, is that from what I've read, that story of the Moores bombing uh, murder was in the local news for about a week. But after that, no one covered it really. And so if they don't see it in the news and remembering at the time, I'm not sure they had television there. And if they did, only a few people had television there. There was no radio program that carried that story. The only black papers was papers like the Pittsburgh Courier and some other black papers, you know, away from here who carried the story. So many people, you know, if they didn't, get it that first week or so, then they just never got, you know, the news about that. And that's again was a tragic thing there, that it wasn't carried by the news media at the time. Of course, you know, things come into play when you think about it. Harry Moore didn't have access to a radio station or program that would allow him to go on and talk about things and, and record things. There was no TV that was following him around or, you know, journalists who were, you know, taking photos every time he made a stop when he went to, you know, Live Oak or a some someplace there, there was nobody to record that and he publicized it. So it's kind yeah. of easy for that story to get lost in everything.
0: Yeah. And one thing that I do find interesting is that it's a shame that Harry Moore died before the television age because I could only imagine some of the speeches that he could have given, yeah. especially especially in the height of the civil rights movement where right, yeah. I will guarantee you, Harry would have been front row with Martin Luther King in Selma.
2: Right, sure, and he sure. would have
0: been right on stage with yeah. Martin Luther King at DC when he gave the I Have a Dream speech. Just imagine some of the things that we got stolen because of their homicide. And it's like... Yeah. If only Harry Moore could be here today, what kind of impact could he have given and and even to that thought, the impact he could have given throughout the civil rights movement you know and unfortunately, as you just mentioned, the nation doesn't hear much about Harry Moore, but people overlook the homicide because Medgar Evers was killed in Jackson, Mississippi, and, yeah. and nationally he's known as one of the first martyrs of the Civil Rights Movement, Right. which, as we all know, is untrue. But at the right. same time, Medgar Evers gave as much to the Civil Rights Movement as Harry and Harriet Moore did, and it's just so sad that it had to come to... Murders to get to where we are now, like with well, the Moors. It's and-
2: it, you know a couple of things I think that we could mention well. about Megger and Harriet Moore. One was when Megger was killed. Of course, there was more coverage because there was mm-hmm. TV, and Megger was in the capital, a city of Mississippi. So yeah, Jack- the Local news there covered him all the time. And Medgar had, I believe, a more organized organization around him at that time. Harry Moore, even though he was leading the Florida State Conference of NAACP branches, remember toward that end, he was at odds with the national office because He wanted to concentrate more on registering voters. The National Office wanted him to concentrate more on signing up memberships there. And so, quite frankly, the National Office could have done more, I believe, toward promoting him and what he was doing and whatever. And they chose not to because of that. Whereas Mega, when he was killed, his wife actually took an active role in the NAACP, ultimately becoming chairman of the National Board. And so naturally, she was never, never going to let them forget who Megha Everett was. Oh, yeah. Harry didn't have that advantage there.
0: And what's interesting to note, too, is after Medgar's homicide, Murley moved to Bend, Oregon, mm-hmm. and she married a man who was from California, and they lived their lives, and then he passed away shortly. I think it was either shortly before or after Beckwith got sentenced to life in prison. Yeah. But I remember the story about that, too. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Medgar Ever story, One of the best ways to learn more about the story, even though I know it's dramatized and stuff like that, Ghost of Mississippi tells a perfect version of that story that right. I couldn't tell you. Cause I mean, you had the all-star cast of the now controversial Alec Baldwin and Whoopi yeah. Goldberg and James Woods that played. Uh, yeah, James Byron. Woods, yeah, and he, right. and he yeah. played a perfect Byron. Right. Dale Byron like, yeah. They had the, they had the makeup just right. And the yeah. accent just right. And, Man, it was a good movie, but I would recommend people who want to learn more about Medgar Evers to watch Mm -hmm. that movie. And I mean, the thing is too, is that in the 50s, this was also the height of retaliation against blacks for wanting that equal right, the equal right to vote, to drink out of the same water fountain. And the KKK would hold rallies and they would lynch people. Right. Um, And even while... Harry was still alive. Some of the most high-profile lynchings occurred, like Willie Howard in Live Oak, Emmett Till, and Money Mississippi. And honestly, if you were to compare Willie Howard and Emmett Till, there's really not a whole lot of difference there. It's just that with the Willie Howard case, they didn't have a whole lot of time to mangle Willie like they did with Emmett, and it's just such both sad cases, but. Another case that was happening around the same time that Harry was still around was the Groveland Four case. Right. And that's something we'll cover here shortly, but that was a very particular case that still is talked about today because-
2: has all the elements of things, even of today, recent times Mm -hmm. there, you know, and And while you're talking about lynchings and stuff, you're probably familiar with this, but- 1926, here in Brevard County, a man named James Clark was lynched in what's called O'Galley, which is really the North Melbourne area there. And of course, no one was ever brought to trial for that murder there. I even spoke with someone who is affiliated with the South Brevard Historical Society, and she said that she knew some of the people who was part of that lynch mob there, but they don't want to tell what happened. I mean, she wrote out what she got from other witnesses who saw what happened. But, you know, that was 1926 there, you know, the year after he came down here to teach school. Wow. And then thinking about it, when he was born, I believe it was 1948 that who was it? FDR that signed the uh, executive order integrating the military services there. So
0: Oh, that was Truman. Truman.
2: Okay, Harry Truman. Yeah, Harry Truman. So, you know, there was only three years from people who my father included who was in the navy and went was served in the Pacific there on a battleship during World War II and come back in 1951, you know, this happens.
0: Yeah, and actually you mentioned about that too about the integration of the military. Mm-hmm. I remember the story of Carl Brashear who mm-hmm. served in the United States Navy and his story is very interesting because when he enlisted he was like one of the first black people to join the navy and well, they made it very difficult for him. for him. And then I remember too that while he was serving he had an accident on on one of the naval ships which Cut off his leg, like I think it was an anchor, and like one of the loose anchors, it slid mm. right across his shin or somewhere underneath his knee, and they had to amputate his leg from the knee down. And they were telling him, "Hey, look, you know, you can't be in the Navy anymore." They were trying to find all kinds of excuses to get right, this man yeah. out of the Navy, but he proved the Navy wrong and showed them that he could indeed still serve even with a disability, yeah. and he would retire as I believe a captain in the Navy. Oh, so cool. it's like some of these stories that you hear about, you know, these are stories that should be told and that more yeah. people should know about. But unfortunately we don't hear about that. It's all yeah. overshadowed by, right. you know, well, I, the I a dream, Yeah. a
2: shift in history, you know, not including being inclusive in that. And that's something that we are working to, Make sure that doesn't happen is to the extent that we can you know is that all of history is told, and that our students in particular know factually what the history is there. it's for conversational purposes, you know it's nothing you can do with it now because it's history, yeah, but it is for conversational purposes and learning purposes that you know you we learn from history and hopefully. We can make better choices and decisions, you know, going forward in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with that. And I need to make a quick correction, actually. Okay. So Carl Brashear actually was the Master Chief Petty Officer when he okay. retired from That's- the Navy. Okay. And he actually served from 1948 to 1979. So oh, he had a very long time. I mean, we're talking right. Korea and Vietnam and right. like... Yeah. Man, just if he was still alive today, I would have loved to have had him on the show. Yeah, okay, him, man. <laughs> just got... imagine some of the stories he could tell. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I... And also, too, you know, going back to where Harry's upbringing to where he went to Jacksonville, mm-hmm. I noticed, you know, I grew up in North Florida and some of the stories that I heard about Jacksonville was that it was. Pretty much like the promised land for blacks back in the day, because there right, was yeah. more opportunity. And this is yeah. where like A. Philip Randolph was from. Was, right, Jam- yeah. James Weldon Johnson wrote yeah. "Lift um, Every Voice and Sing." Um, and
2: there was a guy who was president of the Jacksonville branch in His name was Rutledge Pearson, mm. who was very yes. active in voter registration and, and stuff in the Jacksonville area. There and. Actually, when I became active with the NAACP in about nineteen eighty here and started attending state meetings I met his widow, Mary Ann oh, wow. Pearson, who was a secretary to the state conference there for many years there. And then her daughter, Patricia, was also active in the, the state conference too. So got to know them and I've heard you know wonderful stories about his courage and his work. And another guy from Jacksonville, Rodney Hurst. I don't know if you're familiar with the name, but you know he doing that Axound Saturday. Yes, he was president of that youth council there. And I can't think of his name, but there was a judge who went on to serve on the Florida Supreme Court, I believe.
0: Joseph uh, Hatchett.
2: Yeah, Joseph Hatchett, mm-hmm. who was. The attorney that, you know, yes. got those youngsters out of jail there. So you're the right, yeah. Jacksonville has a very storied African
0: American history. Nick, while while we're kind of talking on the subject, do you know if there were ever any like civil rights issues in Wisconsin back then?
1: As to the best of my knowledge, my sort of education situation was a little different in terms of I kind of switched schools around for middle school. I'm not aware of any major civil rights types of situations that occurred here. I know, I mean, there more than likely were. I do have to say that recently Black Lives Matter situation was, you know, very present here. I was in a protest in Wausau, which is an hour away from where I live. And it was the summer of 2020 when the protests of, or the protests regarding george floyd's murder were being conducted all over and i know that was a very important period in history for us and it even opened my eyes to to many more issues that were going on and it was a powerful thing that's just one i guess situation that i can name that i've personally been through but i've always heard that madison a very nice
2: city one of the all american type cities there you know and you know, I've read, you know, read about you know, ten best cities in the U.S. and whatever. And Madison always seemed to be one of the ones that was ranked that, you know. And I guess from not only public accommodations and parks and stuff like that, but also from the racial component there too. Mm-hmm. That it's a very yeah. good
0: city. And I've been to Madison before too, okay. and I really loved my time in Madison because uh, oh, yeah. it okay. was it was very very inclusive there
2: and that's good i wish more cities would welcome that and that would be you know a goal that they would try to bring to their different locations there because i think that, that brings about you know better understanding there when you become familiar with people you eat with them you work with them you yeah. be around them you sooner or later figure out that they really are just like you yeah you, know? exactly. you know they may go to church on saturday and You go on Sunday and they may
1: wear some, you know, different dress than you. But underneath, they are pretty much just like you are. Yeah. And one thing I do also want to mention too, it's I basically grew up in, you know, this city of under 8,000 people. Most of the people up here, they're of European descent. You know, it was a very different experience when I you know, graduated from the local technical college and transferred down to, I was briefly at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. Oh, uh, yeah. Transferred to UW-Green Bay. And it was really kind of, you know, like a culture shock, I guess, to just see how diverse the student population was. Well, even with my instructors too. You know, this was something that had never really, you know, I guess that I hadn't experienced up in my small city during my education. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are so many different cultures that are present, you know, and it's not just limited to, you know, the foreign exchange students who are here for a year or two and then leave. It's, you know, made up of a lot of people who are, you know, the children of immigrants who are immigrants themselves. And, It's a very eye-opening experience just to be surrounded by a big student body that is full of many different people who don't look like you, who Mm -hmm. don't speak the same first language. And I made quite a few friends there and it was so different, but definitely a positive way for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a wonderful thing too when you can go to a community like that. And I remember my experiences in Portland were very similar cuz yeah. I lived in Portland for 6 years and I just remember how diverse it was. But I'm digressing here because, you know, we have a whole lot more to talk about with Harry Moore because, you know, we talked about how Harry, he went to school, got his teaching degree and then ultimately he would relocate to Brevard County and become a school teacher. And then, mm-hmm. then he met Harriet, who was oh, just a little bit older than him, but not by yeah. too much. Yeah. And I remember reading somewhere where both of them actually went to Bethune-Cookman College over in Daytona, and they both got their degrees there. Right. Am I the correct matter-
2: Yes. The whole family, Harriet and the two daughters, was the first family to graduate from Bethune-Cookman College, now Bethune-Cookman University. Mm -hmm. Ironically, Harry, because he was busy with uh, civil rights, would take classes during the summer, and he didn't really get his bachelor's degree until the summer of 1951, which, you know, he was killed in December. So he was kind of the last one to get it. But the whole family received their bachelor's from Bethune-Cookman College, yeah.
0: Oh, my word. And that school in itself is very rich in its history, in too. Its history,
2: oh, yes, right. Yeah, extremely rich in its history uh, there. We have, back a couple of years ago, the college awarded Her Heron-Harrod Ph.D. degrees post They donated the cap and gowns and so forth. To our museum, so we have them oh, on wow. display there in the museum. Man.
0: That's awesome! Yeah. Wow, it's just amazing. Like when you think about that stuff, man. Yeah, you really wish you could have at least seen them wear that, and you know, oh, yeah. actually yeah. use yeah. those degrees. Just yeah, imagine that, that, the things. Yeah,
2: that, you know, some been some things that have happened that you wish they had been, even to their daughter. She passed away in yeah, in twenty fifteen. And there were some things that happened, you know, between now and 2015 that she would have been overjoyed to have been able to to see. Because one of the things that, and I know this because over the years, Evangeline and I became quite close. Whenever we were having, putting on a program at the Moore Cultural Center or any other place regarding her parents, we would invite her down to be part of that. And oftentimes she would stay in my home here rather than in a hotel. And so we would sit up at night and just talk about, you know, her life and things that bothered her and so forth. And one of the things was she just didn't feel that her parents had been appropriately recognized for the work that they did there and stuff like that. And so, you know, I woke up. Promise to her that we would always try to protect the family name and work to make the public aware of the work that her parents had done, you know, in the wow. name of civil rights. There.
0: And that had to be probably such a big honor for you to be able to host her and be oh, able yeah. to sit up and talk with her because right, not, a, yeah. not a whole lot of people are lucky enough to do that. <laughs> well,
2: no, she had a few other friends here. There was a couple over in, I think, Sarasota that was friends with her, she would call. There was a cousin or something of hers in Daytona Beach that I drove her up there a couple of times to meet her and, you know, spend the day with her. And there was a lady, Annette Millicone, who was head of the law library here in Bavard County at the Moore Justice Center. And they became very close friends. And she would usually you know, have lunch with Annette, spend a day with her, you know, talking with her and stuff. So she developed some close, I can really say, and she even told me herself that she didn't want to move back down here, but she really had more friends here than she had up in Maryland now where she lived. Yeah,
0: and I feel her on that too because that's how I felt about Portland was like I had, you know, Mm -hmm. Some friends there and I had somewhat of a life, but then when I came back to Florida, I realized, you know, how many people that I knew, all my good friends were here, all my family was here and I missed them so much. And so that's why I was just so thankful to be back home, even though... Mm at the time I really didn't want to be back but ultimately but, yeah. I felt good about being home and, being and back, I'm yeah. sure Evangeline was like that. And Evangeline yes. was the youngest daughter of Harry and Yes, was right.
2: the oldest daughter Rosalie Peaches as she mm-hmm. called she passed away in 1972. She's buried in Ocala. Yeah, but she was oh. a teacher over there. When Evangeline passed away they had a memorial service for her. In Maryland, but her son called and asked if we would have a funeral service and bury her here in the LaGrange Cemetery where her parents was buried. So we organized a funeral here. First time I ever done that, I didn't even organize my mother or my father because my brother, you know, they they were up there in Mississippi when they passed. But we had a funeral here in Mems. At Shallow AME Church, where they attended there. So, yeah. Uh, and they are buried there. In Le- and she's buried in the Le- Grain Cemetery.
0: I'm just glad that Evangeline eventually came forward and started advocating for Harriet and Harriet Moore because yes. if yeah. I remember, you know, she was kind of closed off from all of that for the longest time.
2: For many years, for many mm-hmm. years. And she revealed to me that she had been in therapy for many years because she just really never got over that and I can imagine you know you come home on Christmas vacation and you find out that your home had been bombed and your father's dead and your mother is mortally wounded there I mean that's a Christmas present that you would never forget you know you just never forget that and She never did. No, she never did. But she did begin to come out. And after, you know, I think a number of years in therapy, she apparently was convinced that maybe it was better that she talked about it and let her feelings be unknown. You know, and and so she began. And I think also the movement to dedicate a park and a memorial cultural center to her parents, was encouraging to her that finally people were beginning to appreciate the sacrifices her parents made. And she wanted to be a part of that, you know, letting everyone know really how valuable her parents had been to changes for our society there.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and I'm glad she did come forward eventually. I mean, otherwise sometimes I think, you know, would the Harriet Harriet Moore Cultural Center be there without her?
2: Well, as it was, it would have, because the whole idea for that came from a man named T.H. Poole, who was the president of the Florida State Conference of NAACP branches. And his original thought was that the NAACP could buy the old Moore homestead, but after Looking into that a bit, I think he may have concluded that to make it into what he envisioned would take more than what the state conference could really afford there. Yeah. So he asked us to find out who owned it, and then he asked us to arrange a meeting with the our county commissioner this, who was representing this district, this northern district. They discussed it and agreed that the county should purchase that property and develop it into a park. And it goes, that's part of the history of it. That's how it got started there.
0: Yeah. And that's awesome.
2: Yeah. When we came along, we being the Moore Cultural Complex Board, which was actually formed in 2002 and I became president in late 2004 You know, part of the park that was not included in the initial construction, the money that had been set aside for the park, only built the cultural center and the parking lot. So after I came along, at that time, I knew some people in the state legislature. One of them was a local politician, and they helped me secure funding to build a replica of the house. Yeah, That was one of the things we wanted to add there was a replica of the house. And then we spent, you know, another year traveling around finding, you know, furniture and, you know, artifacts and stuff to go in there. And then we wanted to build some reflecting pools, taking the idea really from the King Memorial in oh, Atlanta yeah. of, the, of the pools. And so we got funding to build twin reflecting pools and a fountain there and then a brick part, uh walkway and a gazebo and we built what we call a civil rights trail and so there's 24 big kiosks along this trail and each one has a poster of some significant civil rights event there, you know, starting with Harry Moore and then the formation of the NAACP and all around there, I have a dream wow. speech and so forth and so on. And then we built a pavilion in the back of the park, and that's used for reunions and family get togethers and that kind of thing, like that. Parks and Recreation, you know, rents those out there, but we kind of added all those components to complete the whole park there. And people find that, you know, very interesting when they come around and see the replica house and see how it's furnished and we have two life-size mannequins in the replica house there harry moore is sitting at his desk as if he's writing a letter there and harriet is standing right beside him looking over his shoulder there
0: oh that's cool
2: yeah we've got a project now we're looking into get some animatronic figures built to go in there so that they can actually interact and talk to people there so that's Coming up this year,
0: yeah. Oh, that's so cool! I hope that they have those there when I come and visit because yeah. that's going to be.
2: I hope so too. We, yeah. uh, matter of fact, have interesting enough. The company that I'm working with is in Jacksonville, Sally Corporation, and so their vice president of sales is due to make a visit down here in next April. Next oh, April, nice. and we're going to go over some things and let them look at what we've got and make some ideas and, you know, so forth. So he got all kinds of things that we are working on to try to give people a really educational experience and try to just, you know, give them a taste of what it looked like and what sure. it was like during that time there. So to yeah. educate them about the Moors.
0: And I know, you know, when we talk about Harry Moore's life in Brevard County where, you know, he was one of the founding members of that branch of the NAACP go Mm -hmm. on to become president of the state chapter. And then ultimately, you know, he created the progressive voters league as we mentioned earlier. And I remember I was thinking about this too, while we were, when you were talking about the PVL was without like things like the PVL, we would have had more issues with voting equality. I can say, Mm -hmm. because I know At least Harry Moore put the seed in place to start gaining that kind of equality at the voting booth. Because when you think about it, like if you recall in Alabama, you know, they were having these so-called white primaries where, you know, basically they were shutting out black voters. And then on top of that, they were making the voter registration difficult for blacks. By like making them pass IQ tests, making yeah. them guess how many jelly beans were in a jar. Yeah. And like, I think that's bull crap to go through that. Like, seriously, what makes a white man's vote better than a black man's vote? Like,
2: well, and Jason, you know, you touched on some, you know, serious topics there. As a matter of fact, in the state of Florida, even though he was trying to register blacks as Democrats, but The Democratic Party had a policy that blacks could not vote in their primaries. Right. And one of the lawsuits that Harry Moore was able to win was to open up that Democratic primary to black voters there. So that was a big win in itself there because at that time, if you were a Democrat and you won the primary, It was a pretty foregone conclusion that you were going to win the general election there. So it was important that people were able to vote in those primaries there and have a say in who was elected there. But, yes, I can remember my father, my grandfather, back when I was growing up as a boy in Mississippi, talking about they couldn't vote trying to vote because they had to pay poll taxes. Oh, Discussed. They had to be able to read a section of the Constitution and then interpret it. These was some of the things that was in place there. And, you know, I'm not going to take up your time here, but if you go back to Reconstruction, when blacks were being elected to political office, there was people who became afraid. Oh, right. you know, they're going to take over things. So we need to put some things in place to keep them from being able to vote and stuff. And so it's this Um, fear of sharing of power. You know, it's one thing when you have all the power, it's another when, you know, it appears that someone else is going to be able to share some of that power there. And that's what I think is driving some of the things we see even today. Yeah. And that reminded me of
1: how, you know, a lot of the, votes with the latest you know election were they were trying to throw them out I know the, a lot of the absentee voting but I think they were really really trying their best to you know play dirty and make sure that one particular candidate wasn't elected by making the polls less accessible for their supporters and it's just unfathomable that it's still happening today mm-hmm. you know when you think yeah this kind of stuff only happened back in, you know, pre 60s America. No, it's oh, not. No. It's still happening today.
2: We can't yeah. give
1: up. We have exactly. to you know, keep on and
2: no matter, you know, what the challenges are, we have to meet them there because the, the outcome is too grave, you know, if, exactly. if we don't. So we just have mm-hmm. to stand in line. If it takes, you know, all day, then we do that. You know, if we have to double check our signatures and whatever, then we'll do mm-hmm. that. And I think that is when people think you will do whatever it takes to ensure that your ballot is counted, that's a more threatening and concerning issue than even them putting up those challenges there.
0: Because right. you know, it's,
2: it's like, if you see, you probably saw the Godfather Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I can't forget
0: that one.
2: Yeah, the one scene when Michael Corleone is in Cuba, and he's riding along, and the rebel, you know, explodes the bomb there right by the policeman, and he says, you know, the rebels will win. And the guy asks him, well, why do you think that? He says, the rebel, you know, he gives his life for it there. Mm -hmm. The other guy's getting paid to So it's this kind of, you know, scenario is that when people give their lives and put all their well-being and stuff on the line for the right to vote, that presents a clear and present danger to the status quo.
0: Yeah. And that brings me to Selma, actually, you know, with the Selma riot that happened in 64. And I remember last year I visited Selma. And I got a chance to stand on the bridge where it all happened.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And hearing the story firsthand from someone who had an uncle experience a beating by one of the cops that day, he toured me through the whole city and just told me about what happened. And, And then I think back now, as we were writing the story on this episode, you know, it's like, honestly... Had Harry Moore not been one of those first pioneers to plant the seed for equal right to vote, who knows if Selma would have ever happened? Yeah. I mean, eventually it would have happened. It would but, have, yeah, right. but that soon, like over 10 years after the Moores were murdered, like I think it would have happened way later, in my opinion. So, yeah. you know, and with the Progressive Voters League, when we look at the history of – that organization we find out that they were able to register over a hundred thousand blacks into the Democratic Party, which yeah, unheard of actually I mean I mean it's great. it was really great, and it's amazing to hear that, especially considering that in the early late 40s, early '50s, important elections were going on, as most notably when we opened the show, I was talking about Dan McCarty for governor. Right. When, you know, like I said, he was going to be giving an equal fair handshake to everyone in Florida. But unfortunately, Mother Nature said she had other plans for him. So then we get reverted to a racist governor from Bradford County. So it's like, yeah, again, one step forward, two steps back, unfortunately. But, you know, at the time, too, Harry Moore did way more for blacks until the time of the civil rights movement here in Florida. And this kind of segues into an important topic I wanted to discuss in Mm. this case was the fact that he had heard about a situation that happened in Lake County, Florida, where these four young men were accused of raping a woman. And these guys were named Ernest Thomas, Charles Greenlee, Sam Shepard, and Walter Irvine. And popularity-wise, they would be known as the Groveland Four. And this happened on July 16th of 1949, where this situation happens. They all run away because their names are being slandered throughout the state of Florida for a crime that they did not commit. And one of them gets caught in Madison County by a sheriff's posse. And they literally kill him with like 400 bullets. Like yeah. they shot him 400 times. Uh, yeah. And yeah. the posse totaled over a thousand white men, Right. which that right there is uncalled for. It was overkill and was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But back then they thought it was necessary because he was black. They don't want to tell you that. Yeah. But because was like, oh well, he was a rape suspect who ran away and he was we thought he was armed and dangerous. Bullshit. He was black.
2: Yeah. That that was really the armed and dangerous part there. Yeah.
0: You know yeah. And then ultimately these guys would get caught. The two adults would be sentenced to death and the juvenile, Greenlee, would be sentenced to life in prison, which nowadays you cannot do under the Florida Constitution. Yeah, If I remember, they were forced to confess to this crime after Willis McCall, who was the sheriff at the time, allowed his deputies to beat two of the suspects in this case. And as I mentioned, too... They all got life sentences, but then they were able to retry the case. And this time they had NAACP on their side and Thurgood Marshall took it all the way to the Supreme Court for a retrial. Yeah. And it was granted. But honestly, did the retrial do anything for them? No, no. I mean, other than the fact that they had a right to it. But it was still going to be the same song and dance, you know, a jury full of whites who are going to convict them. So, this Groveland Floor case, though, when I heard that Harry Moore got involved in that, I was like, wow, he really had his hands in the cookie jar here in yeah, the state of Florida. Right.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, he didn't believe that these young men were guilty to begin with there. Yeah, and right. the story was full of holes and gaps in there, but as you mentioned, he was four young black guys in Florida in 1949, and a white woman had alleged that they raped and assaulted her and beat up her husband and so forth, so that was really all the evidence that the local sheriff needed and the jury, and they were convicted, and Harry Moore was trying to save their lives, and so he called on Thurgood Marshall to come to Florida to try to defend them, to keep them Mm -hmm. from going to the electric chair, which they were able to do. Unfortunately, it has taken all these years for them to really be acknowledged that they never committed this crime and things are in work to formally and legally declare that they are innocent, but that's something that we'll see forthcoming here. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, and I know that in this case too, none of them ever got a chance to see that they were exonerated. You know, right? And yes. the high court did eventually exonerate them. Right. But and, like yeah. the thing about that was, they all didn't get a chance to live, especially Shepherd. Yeah. Because Shepard would actually be killed en route to the retrial, which took place in November of 51, actually a right. month before Harry Moore and Harriet Moore were killed. Yeah. And I remember the story went that Irvine and Shepard, Walter Irvine and James Shepard, they were staying in Rayford Prison in Bradford County, which is where the state prison was located. The electric chair was located, old Sparky. They were transferring them, but en route, they pull over and essentially the deputy who was with them got out of the car. He shoots Walter Irvine and Sheriff McCall gets out and shoots Shepard, mm-hmm. which from what I understand that at the time, it appeared that the murder was actually racially motivated and it would appear so. But then I find out later that This was also likely a personal murder because Sheriff McCall had been accused of being involved in an underground gambling operation in Lake County, which supposedly included Shepard. Shepard was a part of this gambling ring, apparently, and he decided to kill Shepard because of how high profile this case was, was that, you know, at some point Shepard could make a deal with prosecutors saying, well you know, I have something on the sheriff if you give me a little bit of you know, leeway in this case. So basically, I think it was because he had dirt on the sheriff. The sheriff wanted to shut him up, so he clipped him. And so bringing up the gambling ring would have hurt McCall's chances at re-election. So he just ponied up this whole escape story to make it seem like that's what they did. Right, but ultimately yeah. this was cold blooded, and Walter Irvine would also survive his wounds, but Shepard would be killed and never got to see justice at all. And Walter Irvine would be released from prison; they would be let go by Governor Leroy Collins. Walter and Charles Greenley they lived their own lives after prison. Like I'm planning
2: to get copies of the some future documentation that speaks to this about the bolita ring. And there is speculation that Irving and Shepard actually had bolita tickets and cash on them. And so you're right, Sheriff McCall is implicated as being part of this bolita syndicate. And so the real reason that he committed these murders at this time, or uh, attempted murders may very well be because he wanted to eliminate some competition and this bolita gambling ring there, and he knew that these guys was part of it there you know oh, yeah, uh, this was nineteen fifty one and you alluded earlier to the Ruby McCallum case yep. who from what I read, her husband was very involved in Bolita. Yes, here he was. Florida. So that was a big enterprise here in the state of Florida there. Yeah. And people were making money off of it. So the sheriff very likely was had a big involvement in it and did not want anybody to know about it.
0: Yeah, like Bolita was big in Florida. It's probably about as big as Highlight these days. In that situation, if I was an elected sheriff, I would have tried to get rid of all the evidence that <laughs> could have incriminated me. Well, if those guys had been able to go back to trial yeah.
2: and knew about McCall's involvement and right. in this, certainly I think that would have been offered up to try to get some kind of deal that would save their lives there.
0: And that's what I was really thinking, too, because... Willis McCall would actually turn out to be sheriff until the mid seventies. So he ended up serving a long time as sheriff in Lake County. And then after he was defeated, that would be the time when Lake County would eventually become a little more progressive. And so like it's just so unfortunate that an elected sheriff, an elected official, could get away with such a heinous act.
2: The Florida statutes. Gives sheriffs such power in this state. I'm not sure why that ever happened that way, other than perhaps early on, back in late 1800s, after the state was formed and admitted to the union, that much of it was agricultural and wild, and so they didn't feel that you know governors or others could really enforce laws and make everything. Mm -hmm. you know, peaceful inhabitant so that peace would come here. And so they gave all these powers to the local sheriffs there. And as in any situation there, you know, power corrupts them, you know, corrupts absolutely. And I think Willis McCall was an example of that, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, blacks and whites were afraid of him there because he used that authority to the utmost there.
0: Oh yeah, and I mean, there's even stories up here in North Florida of some of the sheriffs and corruption and stuff like that. And Nick, I'm sure y'all had your share of corruption up in Wisconsin, you know, LaFollette and stuff like that. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, like with Groveland, though, Greenlee would be the longest survivor of the Groveland four people, but. If I remember right, with Groveland, with him, he wanted to forget this whole situation because this was a stain in his life that he didn't want to ever remember again to a point where he moved his family to Tennessee and never looked back. And so that was one of the reasons why I think the Groveland story should be told along with Harry Moore because you really can't tell the Harry Moore story Without talking about Groveland. Roman and uh, yeah. because Harry Moore had a role in that, in the initial situation, the retrial, and Harry Moore ended up living to see the end of that retrial. Yeah. And unfortunately, it was not to his favor. Yeah. And then we find out later in 2016, this was just shortly after Greenlee died. You know, a lot of people were telling Rick Scott, pardon these people, pardon these people because they deserve it. They were innocent. They should have never been tried in the first place. And Rick Scott ended up desking this matter like he decided not to act on it. Do it. Yeah. And so not long after taking office in 2019, Governor Ron DeSantis, along with the rest of his cabinet, agreed to pardon Pardon these men. And I remember a quote that he said, and this was something that I found interesting that Ron DeSantis did say. He said that 70 years is a long time, and that's the amount of time four young men had been wrongly written into Florida history for crimes they did not commit and punishments that they did not deserve. And I thought that was probably one of the most powerful statements that could have been said about this case, and for Ron DeSantis to say that, like, yeah, that was yeah. that was good.
2: Yeah. yeah, he has some redeeming qualities Yeah. Yeah, he
0: does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then just a couple months ago, in November, on November 22nd, which is ironic because that was also the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Home. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Groveland four were officially exonerated. Right. Yeah. And now, even though they're not alive, at least to this day, we can say they were innocent this whole time. Yeah. And that's the bittersweet part about it is that these four individuals can no longer, you know, they can no longer understand that. And uh, yeah.
2: at least now, with them being exonerated oh that's not the end of the story I think there's some more to come but oh yeah as far as history is concerned it's a step in the right direction in right. correcting history you know that these people were falsely accused convicted of crimes that they did not commit and mm-hmm. served time in jail you know one was killed well two was killed actually yeah and can ever bring them back but by some measure at least to the family now when they said that you know they are innocent they're right every you know right
0: and that's kind of like too is like george Stinney in south carolina you know he was executed at a time when kids could be executed for Cuted, such, yeah, such right. wrong things and but what didn't help was the fact he was black and yeah. if anything that sped the process up for george Stinney to be executed that also should have never happened yeah but unfortunately we live in a world now where a lot of people are having to right the wrongs of yesterday and, right yeah and it's something that we should have never had to do in the first place no yeah. but on that note though you know coming up in the next part of our series On this, the final part of the series, we're going to be talking a little bit more in depth about the night that Harry and Harriet Moore were murdered. And that's going to be a topic that we're going to go really in depth with because it's something that the public needs to understand about this case was that we get to share the story of how the justice system was right right when it happened. Yeah. And then we also get to compare how it went down years later when Attorney General Christ reopened the case right. mm-hmm. and how it was all looked at. And I got to say, the initial investigation was a little sloppy. And then when the federal government came in and you know looked at everything, mm-hmm. that's when it got a little more in-depth. And they picked that right. sucker with a fine-tooth comb. Yeah. <laughs> So but unfortunately, politics happened in Brevard County in 51. And that didn't help in the Moore case. But then, you know, you had sympathetic people who really wanted to get a second look at this, like, as we'll discuss in part two, how the sheriff decided he wanted to reopen the case in the 70s. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a very big episode. What do you think, Nick? I couldn't agree more. (laughs) No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So with that being said, so for our listeners, we're going to be picking up next week on part two of the Harry and Harriet Moore story as we talk about the Christmas Day bombing, a lot more detail into that. And then we'll go into some of the police reports also in that regard and how that investigation was done. So with that being said, I want to thank everybody for listening to us today. I know we talked a lot of politics and stuff like that, and, but hey, this is a thing too. This isn't our normal conversation, but I wanted to make sure that everyone gets the gist of what this case is about. And honestly, it's about your rights. It's about the rights of black people. It's about everything and yeah. how just two individuals' quest to try to equate with the rest of the state led into this god-awful tragedy. And honestly, you really can't talk about this case without getting into politics. You mm-hmm. really can't.
2: Politics is all through it. Yeah. I mean yeah. Politics is all through it. It gives us a look at ourselves, and hopefully somebody said, as we become better society becomes better. So hopefully this is an impetus to examine ourselves and our feelings and how we perceive things and make it better for everybody.
0: Absolutely. I really couldn't agree more. It's just like we live in a time where we should fully understand the importance of these situations, but As we mentioned throughout the episode, not many people even know who Harry Moore is. right? And with what you're doing in Brevard County and getting the school programs into the students to learn about Harry Moore, I hope those lessons plant a seed in their brain to where no matter where they go, no matter where they are, they can at least share the story of Harry Moore just like Langston Hughes wanted to do that with the Ballad of Harry oh, Moore. Oh
2: Harry Moore, yeah, sure.
0: Which is such a beautiful poem, yeah. and it's also a sad one. Other than that, Bill, any thoughts, any final thoughts before we start getting into the part two of our episode?
2: No, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast and talk to your listeners and try to give them... Some perspective on Harry and Harriet Moore and their lives and the contributions that they made to civil rights and to the progress that we've seen in our society.
1: Absolutely. Nick, any final thoughts? I just have to echo your gratitude to Bill here because I think without him, we definitely wouldn't have, you know, that. I'm trying to find the right word here, credibility, I should say. I was going to. (laughs) It's what I was looking for to have someone who is so knowledgeable, who can, you know, really get deep into this topic and verify discredit and even add to, you know, some of the research that we've done on this case and to really give it that authentic feel. So I'm really, really grateful we got that opportunity to have him here and I'm sure our listeners will be very intrigued absolutely
0: yeah i think so too and especially when we get into the next part of this series i think Mm -hmm. it really adds to that oomph so Mm -hmm. it was a pleasure having you on bill and we'll be seeing you next week when we talk about part two and how everything went down and nick again it's always great to have you on the show and talking about these important matters like cold cases and stuff like that so Other than that, folks, thank you all for joining us for another episode of From the Vault, a true crime podcast. I'm Jason Futch, and we'll be seeing you on the next episode of From the Vault.